Welcome to the author's show of entrepreneurship and regional development podcasts. Each publication in our journal is a great opportunity to share significant and audacious contributions to a large audience. My guest today is Stephen B. Adams from Franklin T. Purdue School of Business, Salisbury. He is the author of an article entitled From Orchids to Chips, Silicon Valley's Evolving Entrepreneurial Ecosystem. It has been published in the volume 33, issue 1 and 2 of Entrepreneurship and Regional Development, a journal edited by Taylor and Francis. Stephen, welcome to our show. Thank you. Can you tell us what is the origin of your paper? Why have you decided to address this particular topic? And what is the question you aim to answer with this paper? Well, uh, first of all, regarding the origins of the paper, this is part of a larger project. And uh, the project seeks to address the question, how did Silicon Valley come to be? Uh, um, but this particular topic um, regarding ecosystems, I would say my previous projects helped a lot. My first book was about Henry J. Kaiser, who was America's most, most prolific entrepreneur of the 20th century. And what I found about Kaiser was, and I called a government entrepreneur because he started about 100 businesses and almost all of them involved um, the federal government as customer or as lender or provider of facilities or provider of opportunity through changes in regulations, particularly antitrust. Now, my second book is about Western Electric, captive supplier um, to a regulated monopoly, the Bell System. And the Bell System and Bell Telephone Laboratories was a central node in America's innovation system. And particularly for this current project, the invention of the transistor at Bell Telephone Laboratories in the late 1940s um, becomes important because William Shockley, who headed that team, comes to the Valley in the mid-1950s, and sure enough, um, Silicon Valley gets its name from uh, a main component of the transistor. And so, um, and, and by the way, it comes to Santa Clara Valley, which is where I grew up and where I began my career. So I guess overall, um, sometimes you can't tell if you choose a project or your project chooses us. Um, and this seems to be one of those times. <laughs> um, and regarding the question I'm answering with this particular paper, um, it's quite straightforward. What was the nature of the entrepreneurial ecosystem that supported early developments of Silicon Valley? And that is, for me, um, prior to the early to mid-1960s, when there were only you know, 100, 150 firms in the Valley. And uh, there's been a a good deal of scholarship about elements and successful tech clusters. But when developing regions look to Silicon Valley, I think sometimes they get a little intimidated or overwhelmed by looking at the ecosystem as it is now with all the venture capital firms and so on. And I think it's probably more helpful for developing regions to look at the way the ecosystem was uh, for Silicon Valley when it was roughly at a similar stage of development. And that's what I'm trying to accomplish with this paper. 
Thanks. It's a very historical perspective of uh, the growing uh, ecosystem. What are the main contributions of, of your paper? Well, with regard to entrepreneurial ecosystems, it's it's been a sort of a chicken and egg problem. Um, is it the entrepreneurs who come first, or is it the ecosystem? Or in some some scholars have have uh, argued that they develop together. And in this case, looking at the uh, key companies involved, it was quite clear that the ecosystem was present first before these major companies arrived. Um, and furthermore, uh, since a lot of these uh, policymakers around the world are trying uh, intentionally to develop uh, in proper environments or ecosystems for entrepreneurship, I think that it's important for them to know that in the case of Silicon Valley, this developed organically. There was no particular policy that was overseeing um, development of all these nodes of the ecosystem. It, it was an organic process across the board. What was for you the main theoretical or maybe methodological challenges in, in addressing such a question? Well, I'm trained as a business historian. And, and so uh, rather than looking at this as a, through a quantitative lens, um, I, I take a granular approach, organization by organization. And one of the, you know, it's, it's very uh, time consuming and um, challenging, but uh, the rewards can be great because it's easier that way to get at cause and effect rather than settle for correlation. So the first challenge uh, in doing that is the question, can we determine if there were a few significant organizations during this period, as opposed to uh, many organizations of each having relatively equal significance? And um, I was helped a lot uh, at the Library of Congress. It turns out that one of the librarians there directed me to a very unlikely source. It was called the Metalworking Directory. And it doesn't sound like it would have anything to do with a place like Silicon Valley, but it does. It was, it was published by Dunn and Bradstreet and essentially was um, uh, showing information about manufacturing firms of, uh, you know, five people or more. You know, start, not all, but all of a, uh, you know, of a uh, more than nominal size. And they started publishing that in 1960, which is right when my project ends. And so I was able to go, and it's, uh, the data comes by county, county by county. So I was able to look at the two key counties of Silicon Valley, one being Santa Clara County, which is where Stanford University is and where Hewlett-Packard started, and the other, San Mateo County, which is north towards San Francisco, and look at you know how many how many employees did each of these companies buy SIC code, meaning in which particular industry you know electronics, aerospace, um, semiconductors, um, and so on. And uh, I was able to determine um, beyond the shadow of a doubt that there were seven major companies 
in the 1950s in Silicon Valley, and therefore my focus has been on them. And then the three subsequent ones that were um, started in the 50s, but hadn't yet become a big deal until the 60s. So that's the first challenge was determining, you know, if can can I look at a specific population? The answer turned out to be yes. Now the second challenge is okay, you've identified these seven plus three, ten firms. Where are you going to get the information? I've got information about total number of employees as of 1960, but you want to find out more. You want to find out uh, revenue levels. You want to find out. Uh, the nature of financing, you want to know where they got their legal advice, and that becomes um, trips to various archives. And I went to UC Berkeley, to Stanford, San Mateo County Historical Society, History San Jose, uh, Harvard's Baker Library, they have a huge collection of uh, annual reports there, and um, corporate archives uh, of Agilent and Keysight where the Hewlett Packard papers were. So, um, and I was very fortunate with timing. Um, this article you know, just came out, but I was able to visit 10 archives in the year 2019, the long year 2019 ending in January, 2020. If I had tried to do this a year later, thanks to the pandemic, I couldn't have made those trips. I couldn't have gone to those archives. Um, and another issue was I was fortunate in terms of my visit to Agilent and Keysight regarding the Hewlett-Packard papers. I visited there in the year 2015, and unfortunately, two years later, the Hewlett-Packard papers were destroyed by a fire. Um, and so uh, I was lucky to have taken um, hundreds of photos of those documents and they're trying to reassemble that archive. But anyway, uh, that's that's one of the real methodological challenges is um, all of this travel and uh, you know looking for these needles and haystacks. And fortunately, I was able to get what I needed. And during your research journey, what was your biggest surprise or maybe the most counterintuitive uh, result? Well, uh, I think to the layman, the Silicon Valley and its origins are almost always associated with Stanford University. And that's as it should be. Stanford has played a huge role uh, in the development of Silicon Valley uh, in terms of a home where lots of the uh, uh, tech people were doing some of their technology on campus, even back to the first company in 1909, but certainly Hewlett and Packard and the Varian brothers in the late 30s, and then even going to Google more recently. But what was striking to me is that one of the uh, one of the aspects Stanford has been given credit for is as an incubator. In other words, spinning off all of these companies, and um, and the idea is that you know these companies developed right on the doorstep of Stanford University, which is exactly what HP did. But the original Silicon Valley cluster wasn't even in the same county as Stanford University. It was it was north. It was uh, something like 10 miles north. And uh, so Hewlett Packard was actually the exception. And the original cluster was all these other companies developing more closely to San Francisco. And one of the reasons is that aside from Stanford, the rest, much most of the rest of the ecosystem was actually based in San Francisco. That's where the uh, 
financing was, that's where the legal expertise was, and therefore um, that was a major factor for, for these firms. So that's one uh, surprise. Um, and the other was that, uh, uh, that this ecosystem had been fully developed before any venture capital firms existed in um, in the Bay Area. That actually this this ecosystem that I write about was pretty complete by the early 1940s, and it wasn't until uh, really the 1960s that venture capital firms developed in the Valley. So the end of my article talks about the evolution of this ecosystem, which which um, that surprise finding, um, you know, what do you do with that? And you learn that, well, um, ecosystems do develop and change over time, which uh, other scholars have been finding as well. And what are the main implications of your work for entrepreneurs, managers, practitioners, policymakers? Ah, well, uh, I would actually start with that last group, the policymakers, because they're the ones who are... Um, I think most active trying to do something at a regional level. And uh, the thing that I would emphasize if there was uh, a policymaker or policymakers in the room was that here, this, this master cluster of Silicon Valley, it was a, an organic development, um, at least um, in the first two decades of the ecosystem I'm talking about. And, uh, and so, uh, this and, and also that the ecosystem that developed starting in 1940, um, a lot of it had developed not just around high tech, but in, and this comes in terms of you know financing, meaning commercial banks and uh, legal expertise. That a lot of it was inherited from earlier industry and. To me, it was getting getting back to surprises. One of the real surprises is what kinds of industries the banks and the uh, uh, lawyers had been working in, and it turned out to be agriculture and mining, which we don't tend to think of as high tech or as antecedents to um, the internet or to uh, chips or any of that stuff. And yet, sure enough, as far as an ecosystem. That's that's what happened. That the uh, Silicon Valley inherited an ecosystem that um, had served the innovation needs of these industries that we don't often associate with innovation. But what, what was going on with them is that uh, the distance that California uh, had from makers of far of farming equipment and mining machinery forced. The, these two industries in California to innovate on their own. And to do that, they, they needed um, uh, help from attorneys and, uh, and that the branch banking system that ended up helping Silicon Valley entrepreneurs get both face-to-face -face, um, uh, relationships at the branch level, but also the oomph of the uh, headquarters up the road that whole system was set up by APG Anini, the founder of Bank of America, and he wasn't thinking of tech at the time. He was thinking of agriculture, of helping these um, uh, small uh, farmers who were immigrants and not and, and getting 
uh, loans at super high rates because the small towns in California only had one bank and there was no competition. So all of that ends up helping uh, semiconductor makers of all things. And so, you know, th these are some of the surprises you find when you when you dig into uh, history. So that's that's one um, implication about the, the organic development of, of the ecosystem. But the other is um, not only can ecosystems evolve, and certainly uh, scholars are on to that issue, and and in many cases they're they're looking at how ecosystems actually can wither away. But um, in this case, the evolution didn't cause it to wither away, but actually to physically move. That the ecosystem I mentioned that much of it was in San Francisco, but the lawyers and the financing came south. And so now um, all that expertise is housed, not all of it, but most of it is housed in Santa Clara County near Stanford University, or San, Santa Clara and San Mateo County near Stanford University and near these startups rather than up the road in San Francisco. And uh, so that notion that, that an ecosystem can physically move 30 or 40 miles, I think is, is something that policymakers um, would really want to know. Thanks, Stefan, for uh, participating to our show and share with us this uh, amazing research and this historian perspective we should take into account when we are making our research and also this this geographical uh, move from the uh, uh, this center of gravity which is moving from a place to another uh, it shows us that uh, the importance of of history and thank you so much for sharing this with us all our podcasts are available on entrepreneurship-erd.com and on the main podcast platforms <laughs>